1940, a novel by Thomas Wolfe called You Can't Go Home Again was published posthumously, and the phrase has become a standard one in our culture. It means, of course, that it's impossible to return to a place from your past and expect things to be unchanged, and sometimes it's meant to say that one should not even try to go home again. And yet here I am, standing again in a pulpit that I thought I would never be standing in uh, after I left here a, min a number of years ago. But I am very grateful to be here among you, and I can't wait to see all your faces in the pews one day. I appreciate that Pastor Matt invited me to preach on my first Sunday here, but I admit that when he told me about his current sermon series and gave me the topic for today, Does the Divinity of Jesus Matter?, I said that sounded more like a dissertation topic than a sermon title. I was tempted to just answer the question by saying yes, and then just sit down. But I didn't think that's what Matt had in mind. So I'm going to reword the question just a bit so that it can't be answered in just one word and ask why does the divinity of Jesus matter, which is what I think the question was getting at. One could say in the very simplest terms that it matters because of statements like some of those in John's gospel that are attributed to Jesus, like before Abraham came to be, I am, and the Father and I are one. But in the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus never actually said he is God. While there are many passages that emphasize his humanness. So there have been centuries of debate in the church about this topic. To try to help us with the question today, I decided to share two passages that express what Paul said about who Jesus was. The first comes from Colossians. It's a letter that was written to a church that Paul had not established and indeed had never visited. But word had reached Paul that false teachers were spreading heresy there by rejecting the deity of Jesus Christ, probably teaching that he was just a unique man. So to warn the Colossians not to allow anyone to lead them astray, he wrote a profound summary of who Christ is in relation to God, to creation, and to new creation. His argument found in Colossians 1 verses 15 to 20 gave the Colossians and gives us today reason to worship and to exalt Jesus Christ. For through his death on the cross, we are reconciled to God and empowered as the church for Christ-like living. After that passage, I'm going to segue right into Philippians 2, verses 6 to 11, which seems to follow in thought and purpose, also by Paul. So hear these words about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been, been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, 
so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile, all himself, reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. Continuing now with Philippians, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave being born in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend, and in heaven on earth and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Thanks be to God for this his holy word. Those of you who know me won't be surprised to hear that when I was given this preaching assignment for today, my mind immediately went to a lyric from musical theater, from Jesus Christ Superstar to be exact. I thought of the scene when Jesus appears before Herod, the Roman governor of Galilee, who sings, so you are the Christ, you're the great Jesus Christ. Prove to me that you're divine. Change my water into wine. If you do that for me, then I'll let you go free. Come on, king of the Jews. Sorry about that. Well, the song is inspired by the encounter between Herod and Jesus that's recorded in Luke chapter 23, when Herod wanted him to perform some sign to prove his divinity. But Jesus gave him no answer. Even after his death and resurrection, the early church was challenged to come to terms with Jesus as fully human and fully divine. And today, we might wish we could have some concrete proof ourselves, some evidence that our senses would corroborate. For while we can relate to the humanness of the historic Jesus pretty easily and see him as a teacher, friend, even a political revolutionary, his divinity may be harder to, to grasp. In my first week of seminary many years ago, we were given an assignment to write a faith statement. I remember writing, among other things, that I believed in Jesus, half human and half divine. When I got my paper back, my professor had written in red ink Something to the effect of, this requires more thought on your part. Consider our creeds that state that Jesus was fully human and fully divine, not half and half. That was perhaps the first time in my immature faith that I had ever thought really about whether the divinity of Jesus matters. Now, after three years of seminary coursework and many more years of life experience, church-going, classes, and ministry, I still don't understand it completely, of course. But I do take it on faith that Jesus, who walked this earth fully human, 
also was who he and others said he was, fully God as well. Indeed, it is this Christ of faith whose continuing and powerful presence makes such a difference in my life and can make a difference in yours. What first came to mind when I started to think uh, a few weeks ago about why the divinity of Jesus matters is that if Jesus isn't divine, then Easter doesn't matter. And we lose our identity as Easter people, people filled with hope of resurrection, people who know we are forgiven and accepted by a loving God who surely knows our griefs and shares our joys. Therefore, our identity and our hope, our purpose in life and the choices we make as Christ followers, all are influenced by Jesus' divinity. Most of all, it is Jesus' divinity that assures our salvation. For without it, we remain stuck in sin. Well, then I started to think about how the divinity of Jesus mattered to some of the people we read about in Scripture. Take Joseph, for example, who was betrothed to Jesus' mother Mary, which in those days meant that they were legally married but not yet living or sleeping together. Joseph could have chosen to divorce Mary when he found out she was pregnant with a child that wasn't his. This option troubled Joseph, though, because she would be disgraced and possibly killed because of her presumed transgression. But an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph, Joseph in a dream and told him who Jesus was. And from that moment on, Joseph knew what his choice would be. The question also mattered to the disciples who walked this earth with Jesus and were asked by Jesus, who do people say that I am? It especially mattered to Thomas, who in one of the most poignant and powerful scenes in Scripture met the risen Christ, had his senses satisfied, and proclaimed his faith in Jesus' divinity with the words, my Lord and my God. From that moment on, Thomas knew his purpose was clear. And as we've heard, the question mattered to the Apostle Paul. Those readings from Colossians and Philippians make that known to us. Both are thought by most scholars to be written by Paul from prison, designed to encourage and edify the churches in Colossae and Philippi. And in the case of the Colossian church, to counter this growing heresy caused by false teachers who were spreading errors in the congregation about Jesus' divinity. As the Christian church expanded in size and geography, the relation of the human and divine natures of Christ led to teachings of a number of views that were later deemed heretical or false teachings. Docetics, for example, believed in the second century that Jesus was not really human, that he was 100% divine and only appeared to be human. God was only pretending to be one of us, they claimed. Heresy, the church said. Another major fight was against Arianism, a non-Trinitarian doctrine based on the belief that the Son of God did not always exist but was begotten within time by God the Father, was distinct from God and therefore subordinate to him, 
and not co-eternal with God the Father. In the year 325, the Council of Nicaea, convened by Emperor Constantine, devised what is now known as the historic statement of belief in Christianity that we call the Nicene Creed. It set forth the key affirmations concerning the Christian faith and served as a guide in combating heresies. Today, it's the second oldest creed in our faith after the Apostles' Creed. It is found in our United Methodist hymnal at number 880. Among its statements is this. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation he came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became truly human. In short, it states that Jesus is both God and man, each fully and completely. His divinity does not overwhelm his humanity, nor does his humanity limit his divinity. In these difficult days in our homes, our churches, the nation, and the world, it may be helpful for you to take some time to reflect upon just who Jesus is to you today. Read some of the many scriptures that make clear the humanity of Jesus and also take time to consider his divinity. Think about what Jesus may have meant when he said to Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. In your times of contemplation, remember that Jesus is the creator. Today, the same God that created the stars of heaven can make you shine even brighter. The same God that spoke the world into existence can bring new life to yours in an instant. The same God that formed the chaotic earth into something beautiful and useful can transform yours also. And remember that Jesus is the Savior. When Jesus was born, the world was a dark place and humankind could not fix its own problem of sin. A Savior was needed to do for humanity what it could not do for itself. So the one was born whom the angel had told Joseph to name Jesus because he would save the people from their sins. He took on flesh and became one of us to restore our relationship with God. When he rose from the dead, the circle of his earthly life was complete and it was clear he was and he is the Savior. And finally, remember the meaning of the name. Remember the meaning when we say Jesus is Emmanuel. Of course, you know Emmanuel means God with us. It's in the present tense, not in the past. God is with us. 
Now, we can't see Jesus with us in the way his family or the first disciples did, but I believe we can see him today in the eyes and the smiles and the kindnesses of others, both those we know and those who are strangers. I was reminded this week of a sentimental but sweet story of a little boy who wanted to meet God. He knew it was a long journey to where God lives, so he packed up some root beers and some Twinkies to take along with him for the journey. When he had gone about three blocks, he met an old woman. She was sitting in the park just staring at some pigeons. He sat down next to her and opened his suitcase to have a snack and was about to take a drink from his root beer when he noticed that the woman seemed hungry. So he offered her a Twinkie. She gratefully accepted it and smiled at him. And her smile was so pretty that the boy wanted to see it again. So he offered her a root beer to drink. Once again, she smiled at him and he was delighted. And they sat there all afternoon eating and smiling, but not saying a word. As it grew dark, the boy realized how tired he was and knew he needed to head for home. So he got up to leave, but before he had gone more than a few steps, he turned around, ran back to the old woman and gave her a hug. She gave him then her biggest smile of all. And when the boy got home a short time later, his mother was surprised to see the look of joy on his face. She asked him, what did you do today that made you so happy? He replied, I had lunch with God. But before his mother could respond, he added, and you know what? She's got the most beautiful smile I have ever seen. Meanwhile, the old woman, also radiant with joy, went to her home, and her son was stunned by the look of peace and happiness she had on her. She replied, I ate Twinkies in the park with God. And before he could respond, she added, you know, he's much younger than I expected. You may have heard that story before, but I hope you enjoyed hearing it again because it reminds us that if we are able to see Emmanuel, God with us, in our world, in each other, and on a very good day, perhaps even in ourselves, then we are open to amazing and joyful experiences. Our lives are changed forever, and our purpose, especially as the body of Christ, the church, is defined forever. In my research for today, I found an excellent sermon online by the Reverend Mark Schaefer of the United Methodist Church in Cheltenham, Maryland. It was called, How is Jesus Both Human and Divine? The question goes right to the heart of our faith, he wrote, and is what divides us from the other Abrahamic faiths. It is that mystery, that deep truth that has brought us together as a people, that has inspired generations of Christians to dedicate their lives to the one in whom we believe God has been revealed, and in so doing, to join with him in the transformation of the world. For we have learned that Jesus extends mercy to those who have wronged him and tells us that we should do likewise. Jesus speaks truth to power 
and commands us to place our loyalties not in the things of the world. Jesus heals the sick, feeds the hungry, casts out our afflictions, eats meals with the disreputable. Jesus lives out a way of living that models an alternative to the self-interested power and possession-seeking lives that we are inclined to live. And most of all, Jesus comes to us where we are. Or as John's gospel puts it, the word became flesh and set up a tent among us. In his deeds and teachings, Jesus revealed God's nature, that God is loving, merciful, forgiving, just, righteous, healing, caring, and present. And that we should strive to be these things as well. So my friends, let us confess our faith as Thomas and so many others have confessed theirs in our creeds and songs and liturgies and by the very lives we lead. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 3.16, Without any doubt, the mystery of our religion is great. Jesus was revealed in flesh, vindicated in spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among Gentiles, believed in throughout the world, and taken up in glory. For this mysterious central claim of our faith that's been wrestled with throughout Christian history but endures to this day, let us be forever thankful. Let us pray. In becoming one of us, O oh God, you touched every aspect of our humanness and drew us back to yourself. Thank you for revealing to us, revealing yourself to us in Jesus Christ, our hope and our identity and our purpose in life. All glory to you forever. Amen.